You're listening to Corny, the last Irishman in the NFL. Brought to you by Go Loud. The reality of it is that you realize that it's an imperfect game played by imperfect players, coached by imperfect coaches, and the ball's not round. It's oblong, and it doesn't go where it's supposed to go. Episode 3, third quarter, The Pro. It was a loose ball and finally covered up a 10. O'Donnell, you tried to kick it. Oh. O'Donnell, you tried to kick the ball, believe it or not. I don't know what he was thinking, but in a situation like that, fall on the ball. Watch O'Donnell, he tried to kick the kick ball. It. He thought he was back in soccer for a minute. <laughs> Talking about big mistakes, Jim. What a turn of events. I get a call from uh, Tampa Bay. Come on down, preseason, you know. Uh, they had about four or five kickers in there. And uh, I got, had a good preseason, got the job there. But everywhere you went was just the Buccaneers, you know. I mean, it was, the stadium was packed, you know. It was, they used to call the old Sombrero, they used to have about 68, 70,000 people there. You couldn't get a ticket for nothing, you know. Because nobody really knew Tampa Bay before the Bucks came, you know. When you put a franchise in a town, it, you know why they paid billions of dollars now. I mean, they, they, got, they paid six, seven million for the Bucks when they bought the team. I think it's probably worth about over a billion dollars right now. It puts you on the map, you know. When I first came down, there was very few people. I'd go to beaches, man. The beaches were like no condos, nothing. Beautiful, you know. Now it's kind of like Vegas, you know. But uh, it, was, it was just, you know, things come together. Players start believing themselves. You know, it's just confidence. This is Ty Leader, founder of Leader Kicking. So if someone wants to be 14 and 0 as a kicker, that would just mean that if he's attempted 14 kicks, he's 14 and 0, means he's scored 14, missed zero. So he's 100%, 14 and 1, he's hit 15 kicks, scored 14. So yeah, obviously the objective is always to be 100% as a kicker. And if a team was 3-7, um, it's usually that's win to loss ratio, 1-3 loss 7. You got to understand the Tampa Bay team he went to, right? Tampa Bay was 2-26 and 26 when he arrived. This is Jeff Reinbold. During those years, you know, he, he was 55 of 64 on extra points. And, you know, it was 24-43 on field goal attempts. And, you know, he he had the ability to go long, right? Which is, you know, if you were, you know, it's different in in the NFL. You know, you're you're more likely to try a long field goal in the NFL than you are in college football or in the Canadian Football League where the rules are different. And he was a long hitter. He was the guy that you would trot out there to, you know, if you want to muscle one from 50. And, you know, again, I think that's his legacy. I think that's you know, people will remember him as being a strong-legged guy, a guy that could reach, you know, that you, you could go anywhere inside a 60, and those were all hittable balls for him. You know, I got there in 78, and uh, they had drafted Doug Williams. Tampa Bay Buccaneers, first-round selection, having acquired the choice in the trade from Houston. Quarterback, Doug Williams of Bramwick. Williams will try to pass on first down. That's one fly. Long has got House open. He's got it. Touchdown, Buccaneers. Kevin House from Doug Williams. And the Bucks have the lead. 
he was the first starting black quarterback at the time. I'm not mistaken. We had Ricky Bell, who was a great running back from USC. And we had some really good wide receivers. Yeah, it was a very young team. Uh, we had Leroy Salmon on, on defense, and we had a couple of really good defensive linemen. So it was really a team. I mean, what you're in that locker room, it was, it, we were having a blast, you know, everybody was having a blast. I was a Bucks fan at that time. I was a big John McKay fan. John McKay, and I would, I would say for the fans out there, go ahead and YouTube John McKay. He was one of the funniest NFL coaches there ever was. Like he had a line when, when they were so bad, there was a press conference after the game and one of the one of the writers asked him, he goes, Coach McKay, what do you think about your offense's execution? He had these glasses down over his, and he always had his hat, this golf hat on. And he, when the guy said, what do you think about your, your offense's execution? He goes, I'm in favor of it. One of the great lines of all time. And, you know, he was that guy. And he needed to be that guy because it took so long for them to get good. It is me that they have picked us to be the worst team in football because what they're doing now is challenging your physical and your mental capacity and my ability to coach. This hurts me. Second worst team. I could stand it, <laughs> but not the worst thing. John McKay, to me, was a college coach. He was um, at UC, very successful, probably one of the most successful college coaches ever at USC. Coaching college kids is a lot different than coaching grown-ups, as I call them. Why the hell don't you run with a football? He's only got one chance to make his football team. He acts like he's got it made. He ain't got nothing made. Get out there, you idiot! Oh, horse, horse, no guts. That's what's wrong with us. Whatever John McKay wanted to say to me was just fine, but he never said it to my face. You know, he never said it to my face. So, and, you know, you hear it secondhand from somebody. Our newspaper guy would hear it and say it to the NSA. If he wants to say that, that's his business. He's running the team, you know? I mean, that's that's the way you had to do it, you know? But, um, you, you know, I had no, I had no uh, real fondness for the guy, you know? I mean, he, I, I very few people, I think, really like McKay. I think, um, you know, if you were like Doug Williams, you know, one of the, one of the premier players, yeah, he took care of you. Fans of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are experts on the subject of defeat. Together with their team, they were the butt of jokes from coast to coast during their inaugural 26-game losing streak. We came together after 78 team, you know, because they hadn't won a game in a season and a half, 76, 77, and then they won a game in they won one game in 77, and then 78. I think we won about four or five games. So we were starting to get together. You know, now we're starting to feel we can win a few games, you know? 
And then all of a sudden they became the darlings, the dreamsicle darlings in those great uniforms that they used to wear back in those days with the buccaneer on the side of the head and white and orange and, and kind of a burnt orange color. And they were absolutely gorgeous uniforms. And they had a team full of characters. Ricky Bell, the late Ricky Bell at tailback and Tony Davis at running back and the, you know, the Selmans on defense and Mark Cotney on defense. They, I mean, I can still name those names as a, as a, was a college kid at that time. And, you know, I can remember O'Donohue and he looked like a tight end playing kicker. Week number 16 of the National Football League. It's a day of ifs. There are so many things that can happen as far as teams still trying to get into the playoffs, but let us centralize ourselves on the Tampa Bay situation. And then we came out in 79. I think we won the first six or seven games. I think we lost Jimmy DeBose, who was our running back, with Ricky Bell. And that made a big difference. You know, you lose a, you lose a, a star, now we're star. Oh, okay, are we that good? So... We finally, I think we went 10 and 6 that season, but we needed to win one game out of the last four to get in the playoffs. That's, that was the calculation, I think, at the time. Uh, we lost first three, and it came out to that game against Kansas City. Uh, that went in the rain, tornado, and all that. Mark Champion, Dave Kuturek with you. It is a raining afternoon at Tampa Stadium. The Buccaneers kicking off Neil O'Donoghue. The deep man is Johnny Durden. He comes up for it at the eight-yard line, takes it there to the 10, 15, tries to get outside, 20, breaks free, 25, 30, and up near the 35-yard line, Neil O'Donoghue over there to force him down along with Billy Cesar. The rain's going to hamper what could be a championship game, but uh, I think that everybody's going to have to make the best of it. You know, that's one of the beautiful things about football is, you know, baseball, they rain them out, right? Soccer, you know, you can rain out a game or you can weather out a game, whether it's snow or National Football League games and the National Football League are like the postman. They always come, whether it's rain or shine, baby, it don't matter if it's snowing, raining, what it is, you're going to get your football. And that's one of the things I love about football. I think you're going to see a lot more conservative game from both sides. When it starts to rain, the ball gets a little bit slippery. You, you've got to go with a little more muscle, a little less finesse. However, Doug Williams has a, a tendency to throw rather well in rain and wet conditions, and uh, maybe he'll be able to be on target today. The field was actually covered in water. So it wasn't going to be a high-scoring game because, uh, you know, there were a couple of guys dropping the ball, you know, wet ball and all that, and the people sliding around everywhere. I think they missed a couple. And it came down to, I think, uh, the last quarter. And probably one of the few times I spoke with McKay, I figured three points is going to win the game, you know, because they weren't, our defense was holding up. So let me kick it, let me kick it. I said, I got it, I got it. And, uh, you know, he's kind of, okay. The snapper on a field goal can be seven to eight yards away and they, they snap it back at a rapid speed. So the kicker can then get his kick off in 1.3 seconds. So from the ball being snapped to the ball being kicked, 1.3 seconds is the maximum amount of time you can take. Otherwise, you get blocked. And the reality is the top snappers say in the NFL, when they rip that snap back, 
they can do it in such a way and they're judged on by the time the holder catches the ball that the laces on the ball are actually pointing forward so the holder doesn't have to readjust he just has to catch it and put the ball down and the laces are pointing where they should be because it's quite awkward when this when the holder catches a snap and the laces are pointing the wrong way to the side or back towards the kicker you never want the laces looking at the kicker so you got to twist the ball and spin the laces again this happens in like 0.2 of a second it's rapid but it, it it's all happening you don't get appreciation for it when you're watching it on a wide camera lens on the tv um, but it's all going down very quickly and it's a huge skill set I remember the ball being you know it was like totally wet heavy the snap came back hit the ground you know slid back and the holder just somehow managed to get it up you know and uh, and my head was down there was no way I was going to miss it I mean that's you know 70,000 people, man, I, I would have had to left town quickly, quietly in the middle of the night. Field goal attempt, Neil O'Donoghue, awaiting the snap from Steve Wilson. It is a low snap, the kick is up. Yeah. That went through and that was it, you know, we knew, we knew we had it. Players are really whooping it up on the sidelines, this is what a sight to see. The Buccaneers are the NFC Central Division champion. They deserve it. So we won that one 3-0. Man, the town was going wild. You know, it was like winning the Super Bowl for us because it's a new team. But um, we had uh, Philadelphia Eagles the following week, uh, and they were they were highly touted to win the whole thing. And we eat, we beat them pretty handily. Uh, and then uh, we went to the NFC Championship game against the Rams. Uh, we'd lost our quarterback, Doug Williams, to injury. And uh, we, we were with a backup quarterback, and we lost that game 9 to nothing. Uh, never really got a chance. Uh, uh, never even tried a field goal or never even scored a touchdown. So that was disappointing. You know, it was, uh, we were expecting would have got to the Super Bowl, which would have been amazing, you know, for the fourth, fifth-year team. As a kicker, they're the moments you, ha- you have to dream of. Um, they're the moments that get you excited. They're the moments that, you know, you spend all the time training by yourself in the off-season or you go through some really challenges, challenging times as a kicker. But it's those game winners that, that excite you. And as I said, again, going back to, we talked about the mentality, the best kickers, I believe, that's how they look at those opportunities to, to, to kick a game winner. It's exciting. It's, ex- it's an exciting moment you want. It's an exciting moment you want to take. And you want to go out there and own it. We honestly thought now, like the 1980 season would have been the one because we've taken it so far now, we take it to the next level. But then they started making the changes. McKay, who's the head coach, says, okay, we've got one of the best young kickers in the league. We're very happy he's going to be around for a while. Uh, I said, okay. So I was still working hard. And then... Uh, he called me in. He didn't call me. He didn't have the balls to tell me. He had one of his uh, somebody else tell me that they to go a different direction. They had a Gary Premier who was a kicker at Miami for years, the Miami Dolphins, and he had uh, become available. You know, so he wanted someone with a little bit of a little bit of uh, more experience. They never went to playoffs after that first year. It had to be about fifteen years since then. 
he was part of that turnaround. He was part of that team that would go 15 and 17 over the last two years of his career and that they went to the playoffs. Now I'm three years into career and you get cut there. So you're kind of thinking, hmm, maybe it's time, you know? I was married at this time and I was actually working on uh, high rises, uh, building, doing the you know, metal studs for condos and all that. I still have kicking maybe once or twice a week, you know, I'd go, go try out and, you know, I was okay. I was making decent money, you know, making these metal studs, condos. And we're building condos on the beach in Florida, man. How, how bad it could it get? And they're getting paid for it too. And the weather, you know, you're up there, it's probably 80, 90 degrees. And you're looking down at a beautiful Gulf of Mexico and it wasn't bad. And then uh, I was there doing that for about six months and I see my wife down there. She says, uh, you got a call from uh, St. Louis. I said, okay. He says, they want you up there tomorrow. And I said, well, I don't know, okay. So I went down, I told my buddy, uh, I'll be gone a few days, hopefully a little longer. Go down, I arrive up in St. Louis, and they pick me up at the airport and take me to the practice over Bush Stadium, which is down, right downtown St. Louis. My name is Bob Underwood. I run some cardinal social media pages. Some people call me a historian. Neil was cut by Tampa Bay. Uh, before the 1980 season, and the Cardinals had a new head coach in Jim Hannafin, and he was fed up with the incumbent kicker, Steve Little. Steve was a college all-star in Arkansas. He was one of the best kickers in college football history. Arkansas's All-American kicker, Steve Little, did battle almost every Saturday afternoon during these fall days when Lou Holt sent Little on to attempt the longest field goal in Razorback history. The 67-yarder floated through the uprights with plenty of room to spare. With that kick, Steve Little tied the NCAA record for the longest field goal in college history at the time. For efforts such as that, Steve Little ranks among only two place kickers to earn a spot on the University of Arkansas's all-century team. The Cardinals drafted Steve Little with their number one draft pick in 1978. And kickers, there are very few kickers who are drafted in the first or second rounds of the draft, and the Cardinals drafted him first. Uh, so there was a lot of pressure on Steve Little, and he could never live up to that. Uh, he, he struggled as a kicker, as a punter. Um, in 1980, he got off to a slow start, and after one particular game, you know, Coach Hannafin decided to have uh, Neil O'Donoghue come in. They decided they were going to have a kickoff between Neil and Steve Little. Practice was going on. The coach came over. He says, listen, after practice, we're going to do maybe different distances. We're going to keep the team out. Pressure's on. Best man gets the job. Okay. And coach called it a stress test. He wanted to see how O'Donoghue fared under pressure. You know, if he fared well, he could get another job in the NFL. And he wanted to see how Steve Little fared under pressure, knowing that he was probably going to lose his job. They had 16 field goal attempts, and Neil kicked 14 of the 16. He converted, you know, 88%, I think. And Steve Little only made 9 of 16. So the Cardinals released Steve. He calls me and he says, okay, you've got the job. And as I'm leaving, Steve Little is leaving the same time. 
And he says, hey, let me show you around tonight and have a few beers. And I said, okay. Irishman, I said, I've never turned down a beer before. <laughs> and then I started thinking about it. I says, listen, uh, we're playing up in Washington. I said, ah, I better hold off, you know, so I'll catch up with you. So I said, all right, good luck. I got up that morning at 6 o'clock, I turned TV on. There's his car wrapped around a telegraph post. It left him paralyzed from the neck down, and he later passed away. I think it was 10 or 15 years ago when he, he passed away. But it was a tragic situation. I didn't know what I wanted to be playing. I really didn't. It definitely had an effect, and, and you may or may not know, but the year before, uh, the Cardinals had a player named J.V. Kane, and he passed away during training camp, during practice on the field. Um, so this was the second year in a row where they had tragedies uh, that hit the team. Steve had already been released, but he had a lot of friends on that team, and I know a few of them still today, and they still talk about that. A lot of them blame Coach Hannafin for the way uh, he had them do that kickoff, you know, that contest in practice. I think all the players were there watching. Uh, and Hannafin had his reasons. He wanted to see these guys under pressure and, and what they could do. But uh, it really got to Steve, you know, and then some blame Coach Hannafin for that. Personally, I never did. He knew the players. You know, he'd be in the locker room. He shouldn't the BS with you and uh, with all the players and just had a good atmosphere in the locker room. You know, it wasn't a tense atmosphere. Just a good guy, fun guy. You know, after games on Sunday, he'd be he'd be over there. You know, I say we're on one of those uh, boats on the Mississippi there. You know, just uh, docked and we'd have a party after every home game, and he'd be there. He'd come up to you, talk to you. You can go to him, talk to him. So it w- it was a nice relationship. Um, just just a good guy to work for. You know, he didn't make it look like work. And I think he's Irish background, Jim Hannafin. I think he. He felt a little like my background too. He, you know, my nickname up there was Irish, and he just one of those guys that just uh, good guy, make everybody laugh in the locker room. You went out there, you didn't feel the pressure. You know, he did the best you can. You wanted to play for the guy, and you wanted to be successful for him. I want to tell you one thing. I think too many times uh, in this day and age that uh, I hear guys saying, "Hey, you got to promote yourself." Bullshit. Just do it. Have pride in it. And I also want to say this. The heart and soul of a football team is the offensive line. With that in mind, then you, you guys, are the heart and soul of the game. Always remember that. Treat it with great respect. The Cardinals, you know, they moved to St. Louis in 1960 and they had a kicker named Jim Bakken, and he started in 1962, I believe, and he was the team's kicker all the way up until 1978, and he's a borderline Hall of Fame kicker. I mean, they had one kicker, you know, for 17 seasons, and they brought in Steve, who struggled, you know, over three seasons, and there was a lot of pressure on Neil, especially after what happened to Steve, but the rest of that season, he converted on almost 75% of his field goal attempts, which was about, probably above league average at that time. Uh, so if, if he was under pressure in 1880, he sure didn't show it. Neil O'Donoghue, a lanky kicker, 
Number 11, who last week came in replacing Steve Little, will kick off for the Cardinals, who were in red, the Colts in white. I think we should mention, Dick, that the wind is really strong. I would guess 25 to 30 miles an hour. It's swirling, and that's going to have a definite effect on this game. And we're underway in Baltimore. Uh, 1981 and 1982, uh, they approved. Uh, and, and Neil struggled a little bit. He didn't kick as well as he, he did the rest of that 1980 season. Uh, he converted uh, probably around 60% of his kicks, which was below average as far as his peers go. I think the league average probably around 70% in the early 80s. But he did win a couple of big games against Dallas and uh, in Chicago. And the Chicago win gave them a playoff berth in 1982. And Coach Hannafin always remembered that. And he would always go back to those games that Neil had won uh, with these last second kicks. Uh, whenever Neil was under pressure, uh, Coach Hannafin would always go back to those two games. He would take me after a miss, put his arm around me and say, Neil, you're my man. You're going to be here next week. You're going to do it. You know, no one ever did that to me before. Midway through the final period, Emery Moorhead's nine-yard catch tied the score at seven. Suddenly, an overtime period loomed ominously on the horizon. Thank heavens for Cardinal kicker Neil O'Donohue. O'Donohue's 48-yard field goal in the game's closing seconds proved to be the margin of victory in a game that was so very close. Uh, I felt like, you know, you're, you're now a veteran on the team. So, you know, you, 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 you're hanging with, uh, you know, the quarterbacks, running backs. Everybody knows who you are, you know, who they are. So you have a kind of relationship with them. They'd back you. I mean, if they didn't like you, they wouldn't back you. you know, they come up after the game, hang in there, brother. You know, and I always felt like I had their support, and I always felt like pressure on me to to produce because of their support. You know, but uh, the older you get at it, the more you it's, it becomes uh, it doesn't become a job, but you get better at it. You know how to you know how to do it. You know how to react to different situations. You know, when you go into stadiums, you know what to expect. If you're going up to Washington, you know it's going to be a crappy stadium. But back then, at that time, it was. Uh, Grass. I mean, it was all just dirt. You know, Baltimore was dirt on the grass. I mean, you couldn't find a piece of grass. It looked good on TV because they painted it. Now they've got, you know, beautiful surfaces. Most of the games are played indoor. But like I said, you got more comfortable with everybody around you, with the people, you know, with, with the your own uh, press guys, with, uh, you know, the people at St. Louis Cardinals. They all expected me. I was doing stuff in the community. So it was, you know, I felt comfortable. In 1983, the team was expected to make the playoffs, and they finished around 500. I think they ended up seven wins and eight losses, and Neil really struggled. I think he is, uh, he made less than 50% of his field goal attempts, or maybe right around 50. And there was one game in particular in, in 1983 on a Monday night. They were on national TV, Monday Night Football, against the New York Giants. It'll be fourth down, and we, we may have an overtime. All right, Donahue comes out on fourth down. Uh, this will be a chip shot from 22 yards. And Neil kicked the game-tying field goal at the end of regulation to make the score 20 to 20. Okay, perhaps. And the game went into sudden death overtime. So whoever scores first in overtime wins the game. You know what I can't believe is a lot of fans are leaving. Everybody's getting up, walking out. Don't they understand that we play till somebody wins? And the Cardinals had three opportunities. They, uh, Neil had three opportunities to win the game in overtime. Madonna, you 
lives in that world that only kickers know. They don't get that much action. If they kick four or five a night, they only have about 20 seconds of action. You're really right, because the reaction to the kickers is always extreme. Either everybody's patting them up and down and carrying them off, or they don't talk to them at all. I think I hit about a 40-yarder. So here comes O'Donoghue, 45 yards, 45-yard attempt. No way. Go left. And the Giants will get the football back, and they'll get it at their own 27-yard line. Then we had a short field goal, I think it was about 20. 19-yard attempt. Neil O'Donoghue. And it was blocked. He missed it. I don't I can't it. believe it. So the guy came right through, boom, blocked. O'Donoghue <laughs> missed from 19 yards. One oh three remaining in overtime. So I don't blame myself for that. And out comes Neil O'Donoghue. The third one, you're kind of like, wow, you know, you're kind of shattered a little bit, but you go out there and just, you know, you try and take it easy. Oh, he does not miss this one. If he makes it, let's watch him. Not a 43-yard effort. He's, oh, no. I don't believe what's happening. Poor baby. You know, it just didn't work out. It was one of those days. Time is run out in overtime. Go <laughs> into the book, the 2020 tie. There could be a drop in attendance for next week's game. And for Neil O'Donoghue, sleepless night ahead. When you miss a key kick and you're the kicker, Nobody wants to ride with you on the team bus after the game. Nobody wants to sit next to you on the bench. When you fail, it's a lonely, lonely existence. Now, when you succeed, they carry you off the field on their shoulders. But when you fail, you know, it's it's tough. Missing three field goals as a kicker is, um, you don't really even see it much, uh, especially in the pro ranks, because if you do, you're, you're likely to be fired expect there to be four kickers flown in to take your job. You're at one end of the pitch getting your reps, but you know two of the four of the four free agent kickers have been flown in and they're here to take your job. So it's, it's really challenging and the organizations say we need the best to win at all times. Obviously mentally that's that's tough. We don't really experience that a whole lot in Irish sports. If you don't have processes, you don't have a ways to rebound, it can be really challenging and you can sink deeper and um, sometimes there's no coming back from that. I can remember Coach Hannafin, he sent one of the guys home with, home with me to put me on suicide watch. <laughs> yeah, that's how it was. So I got, I got a bit of a hammering in the press about it. Neil was getting booed. Uh, the fans wanted a new kicker. Uh, but Coach Hannafin, again, uh, he stuck up for him after the game and, and went back to those two games that he had won in the past. And he predicted that he would win more games in the future. I would say, you know, and I, I've never had the pleasure of meeting him, but I would bet he's a mentally tough individual, right? You'd have to be to go through what he went through and continue to go to work every day and compete. You know, my usual thing is the press. I, you know, I face him. I never, you know, I'm never back down when I miss the field goal. You know, they come in, they've had maybe 20 guys around you asking questions. How do you feel? Blah, blah, blah. You know, I wasn't running away from him or anything. I think you have to, you know, man up and just, that's their job, and you've got a job to do. But next game was going to be big for me, I think. It proved to myself that I can't come back. And uh, that's one of the things Hannafin said to me. He says, you're my guy, man. You're coming back. Next time on Corny, the last Irishman in the NFL. Neil O'Donoghue 
on Hume's shoulder that looks like the pressure will ultimately fall is from Ireland. Coach Hannafetter, the special teams coach, yells to get out on the field. They're on the field, and just a few seconds later, he's making that kick. So he, he really had no time to think. They convinced me to do it, you know, and I said, okay, I'll try it, you know. And uh, it was funny. The day I signed, the league folded. Corny is brought to you by Go Loud, produced and edited by Lachlan Hart, with additional recordings by Michael McQuaid of Pro Football Ireland. Like, follow, or subscribe to Corny on the Go Loud app or wherever you get your podcasts.